For the past few weeks, Craig has been taking us through a sermon series entitled Blind Spots. When I think of blind spots, I, like most of you, think of cars. Due to poor engineering, some cars are notorious for having bad blind spots. According to MotorBiscuit.com, that's right, I'm going to quote MotorBiscuit.com right now. The problem of overlooked blind spots dates back to the cheaply made AMC Gremlin from the 70s. Y'all remember that car. Made with closed off upper rear quarter panels, this model caused visibility issues for many drivers. The unusual looking vehicle quickly became one of the most hated cars of all time. Blind spots are nothing new. In this sermon series, we've been looking at persons in the Bible who had blind spots in their life, or in their understanding of God, or their relationship with God. I had a blind spot in my relationship with my own father. My grandfather, my dad's dad, was named L.B. He wasn't given a name, just initials. They had a lot of kids, and I think they were just tired of trying to think up names. Those initials didn't stand for anything, just an L and a B. My father was given the same initials, but he was also given names to go along with those initials. Lawrence Barry. He always went by his middle name, Barry. No one ever called him Lawrence. So now flash forward 66 years to 2014, and I'm sitting with my mom and dad in a doctor's office. My dad had brain cancer. We were at the oncologist waiting to be called back by the nurse for a scheduled scan and an appointment. As we waited, my mom leaned over and said, you are going to love this nurse. She's so kind, so happy, so upbeat, and she is great with your father. As she's saying this, I'm thinking, I'm in an oncologist's office, surrounded by sickness, sadness, and suffering. I'm not planning on loving anything about this experience, let alone this nurse that you're talking about. A few minutes later, the door opened and in walked a nurse who looked right at my dad, who was dying of cancer, and said in a loud voice, all right, Larry Berry, you're next, let's go. I was stunned. Larry Berry. Lawrence Berry, Larry Berry. How had I not seen this? Talk about a blind spot. I could have been calling my dad Larry Berry my whole life. <laughs> what a missed opportunity. I only got to call my dad Larry Berry for a month before he passed. That was a blind spot. Today's story comes from the Old Testament book, 2 Chronicles, the 20th chapter, and it concerns a man, a king, who when faced with a dire, hopeless situation, did his best to not have a blind spot in his relationship with God. So this is 2 Chronicles 20, starting in verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Minuites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. 
Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Jehoshaphat is the receiver of terrible news. Not one, not two, but three nations are coming to make war against Judah. This vast army is already on the move and heading quickly towards Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. What to do? Muster an army? Send envoys to negotiate for peace? Build barricades? Send the women and children to safety? Jehoshaphat does none of these things. But the Bible tells us in verse 3 that he was alarmed and that he was resolved. Resolved, what does that mean? Firmly determined to do something. Jehoshaphat was resolved. He had made up his mind. In the face of this oncoming army, there was only one thing to do, and Jehoshaphat was resolved to do it. He was going to inquire of the Lord. I envy his resolve. I tend to second-guess myself so much. But Jehoshaphat knew what to do. Inquire of the Lord. He knew who to turn to. But first, first he declared a fast. That happens a lot in the Bible, doesn't it? In the face of troubling news, folks in the Bible fasted. Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the Persian king, Artaxerxes, upon hearing that the Jewish remnant remaining in Jerusalem were suffering and that the wall of Jerusalem was torn down and the gates broken, responded in this way. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Queen Esther could not go to her husband, the king, without being summoned. The penalty for doing so was death. So when she resolved to go before the king and plead for his people, for her people, she gave these instructions to her cousin Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And here's an example from the New Testament in the first century church. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and set off. Folks in the Bible regularly fasted when faced with distressing news, suffering, trouble, or difficult decisions. Fasting ought to be a part of our spiritual life. When we fast, we put skin in the game. It costs us something. It shows resolve and commitment. If fasting is not something you're familiar with or practiced at and you'd like to start, here's my suggestion. A 24-hour fast. Let's say you're going to do it today. Your fast begins after dinner tonight. You eat dinner, and then your fast starts. And then you break fast tomorrow with dinner again. 24 hours. Each and every time you feel hungry or have the desire to get up and get something to eat, you're reminded not only that you're fasting, but why you are fasting. And that leads to praying for the why. Why? 
the reason that you are fasting. So back to Jehoshaphat, a fast was declared. The people of Judah came together in Jerusalem to seek God's help. So let's see what happens next. Verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the king who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us. And save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they were repaying us. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Jehoshaphat's prayer begins like every good prayer should, by putting God in his proper place. You are God in heaven who rules and reigns over all peoples and nations. You are almighty God. No one can stand before you. And then his prayer becomes a history lesson, reminding God and reminding himself of the story of God's relationship with his people, retelling the story of God's history with his people that we have history together. God gave them this land. The Lord himself drove out the inhabitants so that his people could settle there, and in turn, they built a temple in his name. Throughout the generations, they had carried this promise. When calamity comes upon us, no matter the form, we will stand here in your presence and cry out to you, and you will hear us and save us. A promise passed down from generation to generation. This is our story. This is our song. This is what has been handed down to us. This is what we have been taught. So here we are. And now three nations are coming together against us, nations that you did not allow us to drive out, and this is how, he, how they repay us. Sounds a little bit like Jehoshaphat, is second-guessing God's decision to allow these three nations to exist. Remember, God, we were ready to drive them out as well, but you prevented us. Now look where we are and how they are repaying us for our kindness. Do you ever catch yourself, I told you so in God? God, see? See, God? That's what I was talking about. Remember when I said, I don't trust that guy? You need to watch that guy. See? See, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. Now what are we going to do? Do you ever do that? But Jehoshaphat said, we are powerless. We can't fight this battle. We can't win. We don't have the strength. So pay attention here. This is, um, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this today. Jehoshaphat prayed, 
we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This reminds me of the story told by Soren Kierkegaard. Imagine a big, well-trained, obedient hunting dog. He accompanies his master on a visit to a family where, as all too often in our time, there is a whole assembly of ill-behaved youths. Their eyes hardly lie upon the hound before they begin to maltreat it in every kind of way. The hound, which was well-trained, as these youths were not, fixed his eyes at once upon his master to ascertain from him, from his expression, what he expects him to do. And he understands the glance to mean that he is to put up with all the ill treatment, accepted indeed as though it were sheer kindness conferred upon him. Thereupon the use, of course, becomes still more rough, and finally they agree that it must be a prodigiously stupid dog which puts up with everything. The dog, meanwhile, is concerned only about one thing, what the master's glance commands him to do. And lo, that glance is suddenly altered. It signifies, and the hound understands it at once, use your strength. That instance, with a single leap, he has seized the biggest lout, thrown him to the ground, and now no one stops him except the master's glance. In the same instant, he is as he was a moment before, just so with me. Where do we get our cues from? Are we, like the dog, focused on our master? Have you ever found yourself saying something like this, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you? Maybe not those exact words, but something similar. Maybe in the face of an illness or a financial issue. Maybe in a broken or fractured relationship with your spouse, a parent, or a child. Maybe in a decision that you have to make, but you feel completely overwhelmed. You're not the first to be in that position or situation. Nearly 3,000 years ago, Jehoshaphat set this example in prayer. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And if you prefer a more recent example, Helen Limmel in 1922 gave us this advice in the form of a now well-known refrain. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. What are those things of earth? Our problems, cares, worries, sufferings, slights, shortcomings, all of that stuff of this world fades and recedes into the background in the light of Jesus' glory and grace. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And they waited. Remember, Jehoshaphat resolved not to pray to the Lord, but to inquire of him. He expected an answer. That's faith, isn't it? Have you ever been guilty of praying with low or no expectations? Praying without really expecting God to do anything or respond in any way? They waited in expectation that God would do something. All the men with their wives and children, and the Bible tells us, even the little ones stood before the Lord waiting for an answer. They had been taught to expect God to act. When calamity comes upon us, we will stand in your presence and cry out to you, 
and you will hear us and save us. So let's pick up the story in verse 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Z, the son of B, the son of J, the son of M, a Levite and descendant of A, as he stood in the assembly, just honoring my grandfather there. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the path of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. The Spirit of the Lord came on one man who was standing in the gathered crowd, a Levite named Jehaziel. And he was given a word from the Lord to both the king and all the people. Jehoshaphat asked, and God answered through Jehaziel. So what was Jehaziel's message? Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. God's first words to his people are words of encouragement, words that we all need to hear when facing tough times or hard decisions. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Then he says the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle belongs to the Lord. We need to hear that. We've gotten things twisted, turned around, upside down. Most of us move through life thinking that we are the hero of our own story. I'm the protagonist. I'm the star of the movie. I'm the center of the universe. To put it in the verbiage or lexicon of video games or role-playing games, I am the playable character. The rest of you are NPCs. But what is God saying to Jehoshaphat and the people of Judea through Jehaziel? When God says the battle is not yours, the battle is mine, essentially he is saying, I am the protagonist. I'm the main character. I'm the star of the movie. Let's get this straight. I'm the hero of this story, not you. For lack of a better term, we are all collectively the damsels in distress. Sinners in need of a savior. God is the hero of this story. He is the hero of my story. He is the hero of your story. It's not me, but God who swoops in to save the day. Then he gives them some instructions. Tomorrow, go out. March out to meet the oncoming army. But remember, the battle isn't yours. Take up your positions and watch. You will be witnesses to the Lord's deliverance. Remember, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Go out and face them. The Lord will be with you. To hearken back to the title of the sermon series, Blind Spots, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is a real step of faith for Jehoshaphat and his people. God said to his people, I got this. I'll fight for you. I'll fight the battle. But you must do something. There's something you must do. 
March out and take, out, take up your positions. You'll be firsthand witnesses of my deliverance. That takes faith, doesn't it? They were told to march out as if to war to meet three armies. Why did they have to march out to meet those armies? Wouldn't it have been an awesome story for God to wipe out those armies while at the same time Jehoshaphat and his people would be celebrating in Jerusalem a new festival to commemorate God's deliverance that was happening in real time. How cool would that be? But no, God said, go out and face them. Imagine if tomorrow morning you woke up and started getting ready for work when suddenly you got a word from the Lord. That issue with your coworker, I'm going to resolve that issue today. The battle is mine, not yours. Why don't you go ahead and take the day off? Go ahead, kick back and relax. Order in, watch Netflix. Consider it handled. Well, that's not what God did with Jehoshaphat. He told them to go out and face their problem and see God's deliverance. Why? So they could tell the story. To bear witness to our God who saves so you still go into the office, not to fight, but to bear witness to see how God is going to work in that situation. So let's see how the story ends. Verse 20. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. Early the next morning, they assembled and marched out as they had been instructed. Jehoshaphat encouraged the people in their faith, and Jehoshaphat sent musicians to the front to lead them. Men tasked to praise God for the splendor of his holiness at the head of the army, singing, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. Instead of a battle cry, a hymn of praise, an army led by a choir. And now for the rest of the story. As they began to sing in praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir, to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. God himself set ambushes against the three nations coming against Judah. What ambush is that? It reminds me of a few verses from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. And then in the middle of the psalm, David says this. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. 
My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. And the psalm ends with these words. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We need to hear those words today, don't we? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face tomorrow. The battle is God's. He is the hero of your story. Can we go out and look to see how God is fighting our battles? Can we live this week with our eyes on Jesus, expectant of him actively working in our lives? Can we, like Jehoshaphat, try to rid ourselves of blind spots by fixing our eyes on Jesus? Amen.